Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. I was basically told that I would be a in an entirely self-contained unit as a sports operation. They weren't going to hire anyone else to help me. And if I wanted to do the work that I wanted to do, I would have to do it myself and learn how to do it quickly. And that's such an important thing, especially on the local level where deadlines are constant. You really need to be able to focus on time management and getting things done efficiently. And that's something I really learned in Iowa and it's been with me ever since. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media and the people who make it. Today we're going to be talking digital video with somebody who wrote the book about it. Pearl is a reporter with the NBC affiliate in Atlanta, where he's excelled at being a multimedia journalist. Last October, Focal Press Rutledge published Matt's book, The Solo Video Journalist, which is a how-to book for what he describes is the most in-demand position in local TV news. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay. Well, you reached out to us, which is always great. But uh, first, l- let me ask you about your role as a, as a vi- video journalist. You know, How did you become a video journalist? Well, I think any aspiring TV reporter who's in college right now will tell you that they're likely going to start their careers doing everything, having to shoot and edit all of their own stories, obviously social media now and, and writing web stories, pretty much doing everything in addition to the basics of TV reporting. And for me, I came out of college wanting to be a sports anchor. I had no interest in news, but at my first job in Sioux City, Iowa, I was a one-man sports department. I wrote, shot, produced, edited, and anchored two sports casts a night. And it was very overwhelming at first, but I also saw very early on the benefits of that, having control over your product, having a certain amount of creative freedom And when I got to my second job, that was in Buffalo, New York, and I really started to see the results and the benefits of that. So I was a sports reporter there, but when big events would happen, when the Buffalo Sabres made the Stanley Cup playoffs, I got to travel with our crew. And it wasn't because I was the main sports guy. I was not. But my bosses knew that I could shoot the main sports guys live shots and then do feature pieces on the side. So our team would have a two-person presence with only two people. And then in 2008, my parent company at the time, Gannett, was looking for one-person crews to go to the Democratic National Convention and provide video stories for the websites of Gannett's newspapers. And I got tabbed to do that because they knew they could send me off to Denver, let me loose, and I would come back with a variety of stories. And I wound up 50 feet from Barack Obama when he accepted the nomination for president. So now I'm in Atlanta. I've been working at the NBC affiliate in Atlanta for about eight years. I'm one of more than a dozen solo video journalists on the staff, reporters who can and often do shoot and edit their own stories. I've covered three Olympic games, uh, covered the inauguration this year, just got back from the Super Bowl in Houston. And I can honestly say I don't know how many or if I would have received any of those opportunities if I did not have the capability of filling so many different roles, it has been probably the biggest factor in any success that I've had and certainly the majority, if not all, of the opportunities I've received. Yeah, and I think and this is not just even for, for TV reporters. I think, you know, now that we're in the digital environment, in, in the digital newsroom environment, that, you know, this this whole idea of the jack-of-all-trades, that you need to have competence in lots of different disciplines in order for you to create content. And I've spoken to many sports reporters, and for whatever reason, I think maybe it's partly because uh, the sports desk is, seems to be much more receptive to, to people who are you know, proficient in social media, who are you know, willing to do video, audio, and web pieces, and then maybe other parts of the newsroom. You know, what are your thoughts about that? That's a really good question, and I think part of it is just the norms that have been developed In the industry, I think in sports, it is understood that part of the job of being maybe not the number one sports anchor in a department, but at the very least, the number two and and down, is that you're going to have to do a lot of things. There are only so many people to fill so many jobs. So when I worked in Buffalo, I anchored the Saturday evening sportscasts 
I would shoot high school football on Friday. I would cover the Sabres and the Bills when they would play. And then during the week, I would be a news reporter. And that wasn't so much of an option for me. It was really much, very much just a fact of life that this is what you do when you're in a sports department. There are only a certain number of people. And these days in local news, especially sports departments generally are shrinking. So that provides even fewer opportunities to have jobs that are isolated. You really have to know how to do a variety of things. And in this era, it, it's almost unacceptable not to know how to do a variety of things because of the number of people who can do it. Yeah, and I think the other thing, um, I think the sports audience expects a lot of that, that I think more so than a lot of other parts of you know, our industry, you know, the sports consumer is really interested, you know, is really engaged with the, you know, the, the news team that's covering their favorite, t their favorite sports team or whatever. And they want to be able to have those updates on social media. They want to be able to, you know, see the, the video, the, the top shots from, from last night's game. And they want to engage in a conversation about, you know, what's going to happen in the next game, what's going to happen with this sort of player. They're just much more comfortable, I think, than, you know, other parts of, uh, you know, standard local news outlet. Yeah, and I'd also say there's a certain incentive that might exist for sports reporters early on in their careers that might not exist on the other side. And, and, and by that, I mean that there is a certain cool factor in being able to cover big events. And, you know, when I was in college, you would trade anything to go carry somebody's cables on the sidelines of a college football game. Right. So those kinds of things, I think, continue to apply. And when I was younger, you know, yeah, it was an awful lot to have to learn about shooting and editing and reporting on the fly. But I was getting opportunities where I would be on the sidelines of a Nebraska game shooting Nebraska football at a Minnesota Timberwolves NBA game doing stories on NBA athletes. And this was everything I dreamed about when I was younger. So I think especially on the sports end, there is that factor of it as well. And that's good because I think you need passion and you need to have those benefits and those victories and those joys as you go through the growing pains of learning and, and becoming a journalist and a storyteller. So where did you pick up these skills? I think you went to Northwestern. Is that what the, uh, the path was? Yes, definitely on an educational level. I went to Northwestern, got a great foundation there. I think the biggest thing I took away from my college experience was honestly – the willingness to think big beyond journalism and not just be so focused on the basics and the technical aspects of getting a story done. I don't know if they still do this in Northwestern, but when I was there, you were only allowed to take a maximum of a quarter of your classes in the journalism school. Everything else had to be outside of that, most of which coming from the uh, liberal arts department. So I had a minor in psychology. I took classes in history, sociology in Northwestern was a terrific school for all of that. And I think that really helped me in a variety of ways. I think it informs the stories that I do now because it gives me a certain sense of background and context and perspective. But I think it also gave me early on the understanding that it is important to take the initiative when you want to do big things in this business. And it's something that I've seen borne out is very easy to get caught in the day-to-day -day grind to be so focused on hitting your deadlines every day that you lose focus on the big things that you want to accomplish in the field. But I had great professors, one I'll never forget, Professor Dick Schwartzlos, who is a legend at Northwestern. He passed away just before I graduated, but he taught every semester a history and issues of journalism class where you would sit and you'd come in as a freshman thinking you were going to be a big all-star in the world of journalism. And then he would hit you Socratic method style with various scenarios and situations that would test your ethics and test your judgment. And suddenly you realized, okay, I need to take this much more seriously than even I had thought before. So I think going to Northwestern gave me that kind of foundation. But in terms of the actual skills of the job and the technical know-how, that really came on the fly once I first got into the business. And I, I mentioned being a one-man sports department that was something where I really hadn't planned on that happening. I was hired as a weekend sports anchor, and six months into the job, our station went through massive budget cuts, and they fired every main anchor and got rid of the weekend news. And I was lucky enough to be able to keep my job, but I was basically told that I would be a, in an entirely self-contained unit as a sports operation. They weren't going to hire anyone else to help me, and 
if I wanted to do the work that I wanted to do, I would have to do it myself and learn how to do it quickly. And that's such an important thing, especially on the local level where deadlines are constant. You really need to be able to focus on time management and getting things done efficiently. And that's something I really learned in Iowa and it's been with me ever since. Yeah, it's really kind of interesting. It's sort of a the, going through the crucible of, you know, it's all on you. And I hope so, that's something if people who are listening to this, maybe that they get out of it, is that you're not waiting around for assignments. You're not waiting around for somebody to tell you what to do. All the responsibility on, is on you. And you need to make, you know, all of the choices. You need to make the extra effort. You need to be thinking about the types of stories you want to do and how to improve yourself to, you know, what skills you need to pick up to tell those types of stories. I mean, it's all, so much of it is, is self-directed. I mean, certainly to be a solo video journalist, I would think. Absolutely. And there are plenty of positives to that, too. For example, if there's a story that I want to do that is on a weekend or might not be within the standard newsroom operating hours, I don't have to beg and plead for a photographer to go shoot it. I can go do it when I'm out in the field. If I want to wait five minutes to try to get a perfect shot of a sunset or a car driving by, I don't need to try to convince someone else to get that shot for me. And then if I wind up not using that shot, I don't need to explain to that person why I made them spend five minutes getting the shot that I didn't wind up using. So there is a lot of freedom that comes with that. And I think the thing that I always, the thing that I always try to impress on younger solo video journalists especially is really taking advantage of that, especially when you're young, because local news stations, especially in smaller markets, will welcome that kind of initiative and that kind of enterprise storytelling. And that makes a big difference. I think it's very empowering as opposed to limiting. Yeah. What, what type of uh, stories attract you? What, what, are, what are the things you like to do or, or the types of things you look, look, look to cover? I've always been a huge fan of human interest stories. Uh, it's been, I think it's, it's what has allowed me to make the transition from sports to news. When I was in sports, those were the stories that I gravitated to the most. They were the stories that I made the time to do even when I was in Iowa doing two shows a night and everything I had to do with that, I would still make time to go shoot packages and shoot feature stories that would then become a part of those sports casts. And as I moved along, I started to broaden my interests quite a bit. And I wanted to tell people stories, even if they didn't happen to play a sport for a living. So now that's really what I enjoy doing, not necessarily just on the human interest level, but also deeper pieces, pieces that really dig into communities, really provide people who don't live in an area what it's like to live in an area, humanizing the issues of the day, and really, again, just finding those people that I can connect to an audience and that I can enable my audience to connect with. So where do you find these stories? <clears throat> They're really all over. Uh, I think a lot of times the best way to do it is to be in an area and allow the stories to come to you in a certain way. I found this at the Olympics. I found this anytime that I have been asked to cover a story that is basically an event, basically keeping my eyes open, I will find those people, those great stories that attract me. But also a lot of times it's, you know, I have the platform of working for a local television station. And sometimes it's just really being open to those emails when they come in. And if someone sends something, just having the wherewithal to think, okay, that's a, this could be something. Let me make a call and, and find out more about it. And the best stories that I've done have often been surprises uh, or surprising for me. We did a story once, or I did one on a one-year-old boy who was born deaf, but was receiving a cochlear implant. And we were going to be there as he actually heard sound for the first time. And in my mind, I had envisioned this as a triumphant moment where, you know, it, I didn't quite know what it would look like because this was a one-year-old baby, but I assumed that it would be a very happy, joyous moment, and that would be the climactic moment of the piece. And what actually wound up happening was when the doctors turned on the implant device and the baby, his name was Max, when Max heard sound for the first time, he started crying. And he was angered by it. It was a foreign noise to him. He didn't know what was going on, and it was a very abnormal reaction. At least that's what I thought. It turns out it happens quite frequently. And then after about a few minutes, 
the light kind of went on and then he started smiling and then you could tell he was reacting to people's sounds and that change took place and that wound up becoming the climactic moment of the story. So I always, in terms of finding stories and then telling them, I try to remain open. I try not to go into anything with too many preconceived notions. When I arrive on the scene of something, I'm always looking for the story to unfold to me. I, I try not to impress what I think will happen upon it. You have a certain amount of expectations, and there's a certain degree of planning and making sure you have all the resources you need to tell the story. But, you know, man, once you get on the spot, you have to tell the story of, of what's actually happening. You can't impose, you know, a, a narrative or, or something you, that you've already thought of. You have to you have to be there to cover it and, and <laughs> react and, and be prepared. So let's talk about uh, the uh, the Super Bowl. Um, yeah. you're, you're an Atlanta reporter. Did, were you, did you go there? Go out there as a sports reporter, or just going out to to cover it from a feature sort of angle. Uh, really, all of the above. There were eight of us that went out, and it was a mixture of uh, one of our main anchors, one of our uh, weekend anchors. We had a sports reporter. We had me as kind of the utility guy doing the jack of all trades kinds of things. So I covered media night. I did plenty of stories about Houston and trying to put people who were in Atlanta and desperately wanted to be at the Super Bowl. I tried to immerse them in that experience. And that was really my goal out there. But, you know, with that, there was after they lost, I was on the field and in the locker room in one of the quietest locker rooms I've ever seen uh, and taking on that role as well. So, again, very much jack of all trades. Uh, when I was out there. So, you, well, you had that experience having covered Buffalo sports, the the hope and the, and the disappointment of uh, <laughs> my my wife is from was from Tonawanda. So uh, oh, wow. her, her family lives up there. And so I, I know all about the the watch the or the watching the, the Buffalo sports scene and its um, mixture of hope and, and disappointment. It replayed annually. But anyway, there's so much about the psychology of Western New York. Um, so now this morning, uh, before we, we turn on the mics, you, you told me that you just published a, a piece about solo video journalism. Uh, could, you, can you talk about that and what you found out? Absolutely. And I do want to add, too, that I, I am so enamored with Western New York and Buffalo. It was honestly, it was never a place that I had thought about living because so few places are places that you think about living. But uh, I was there for about four years, and, and I just love it. I went back up there this summer with my wife, the key word be, there being summer. Uh, <laughs> I was not going to take my Atlanta-born-and-raised wife up to Buffalo in the middle of January. But we had a great time, and every time I go back, I always feel the warmth and, uh, and excitement of being there. And it is a really developing and budding as a city, too. It's great to see what's been going on there in the last few years. Yeah, but I digress. Uh, yeah, no. I, and uh, Amber Healy, who is our, our producer who, who does our web pieces, is going to love this. She's, she's, she moved back up to Buffalo, and I was actually just up in, up there to see family in, in January. I don't want to give the, the impression that I'm <laughs> dissing uh, Buffalo. I think it's a wonderful place. But anyway, back to yes. solo uh, solo video journalism. Tell me about this piece that you wrote. Yes. So I uh, back in January. Well, and let me bring it back a little further, too. One thing I've noticed throughout my time, and I, I've reached the point now in my career where I've won some national awards for solo video journalism. I get asked to speak regularly at conferences and workshops about the subject. And one thing that I've noticed and, and seen throughout is that there is a distinct lack of training and understanding for this position, which is the fastest growing position in local news. I think the latest study from Pew said that nine out of 10 newsrooms use solo video journalists and roughly half of those stations use majority solo video journalists. So this is a very, very common trend in local news. So what I've tried to do is I've become in a position to give back a little bit I've tried to use my platform to provide as much education onto this position as I can, because I think it is such a crucial position to the future of local TV news. So back in November, uh, back in October, rather, uh, I had a book that was published uh, that I spent the last two years working on, and it's a how-to guide for solo video journalists. And then in January of this year, I decided to conduct a survey, and I put out on various platforms, this survey where... Solo video journalists could respond anonymously and talk about their job, how they view it, how they view their industry, 
how they believe the industry views them. And it was very revealing, even for me, as someone who has done all this work, done all this speaking, and works as a solo video journalist. And there were a couple of pretty big takeaways. One of them was that MMJs pretty much believe in themselves and they enjoy the actual job. When I, I basically gave respondents the opportunity to grade on a scale of one to five how much they enjoy each individual task of the job. So shooting, uh, conducting interviews, writing a story, editing, all of it. And across the board, solo video journalists responding gave each of those tasks high marks. There was just one where they didn't, and that was shooting their own live shots, which is a very new thing now that is starting to happen in the small and even medium-sized markets managers are asking solo video journalists to not just go report on the story and shoot and edit their own story, but then turn around, set up the camera and shoot their own live shot. And one of the big takeaways we found was that this is the one area that solo video journalists cannot stand. It's one area where they don't feel like they can replicate what traditional crews do with reporters and photographers. It is the least safe of the jobs that they fulfill as a solo video journalist. And it reflects, I think, a bigger issue that we have to deal with as, as a TV news industry and the local TV news industry specifically, which is that what we found or what I found in this survey was that solo video journalists like the job. They say they enjoy it. They believe that they produce work that is regularly on par with the two-person crews in their markets. We got a distinctly negative response to the statement I see myself as an MMJ in 10 years. And this struck me as concerning because you, so you have people that enjoy the job, that think they're good at the job, and yet they don't see themselves doing it in 10 years. So are we going to potentially lose a great talent pool because we're not devoting enough attention to this position and making it palatable enough in the long term? And one thing we definitely saw, or that I definitely saw in the survey, was that there was a very clear disparity along gender lines too. I found that by and large, men gave much higher marks to the position than women, specifically to the question of safety, where we found that men somewhat agreed that they felt safe in the position, but that women on average largely disagreed with that idea. And the question of, do I see myself as an MMJ 10 years from now? We found that men were far more likely to agree with that statement than women. So there are a lot of things to unpack with this survey, and, and I wrote a whole piece about the takeaways from it that I found. But I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning of, of this answer, which is that there's just so little that we know. And as much as we're hiring all of these people and hiring so many young people out of college to fill this job, there is so little that we know about how to properly institute this job at stations. And I think it's having an effect because I know when I talk to young solo video journalists, the constant thing that I hear is that they feel overwhelmed, that they feel burned out, that they're being asked to do far too much, that it's not just a matter of they're being asked to do the same amount as traditional crews, they're being asked to do even more. And that freedom and that creative control is actually being used against them. So I think we have a big responsibility in this business. And I think the survey and the results in this article it's all really directed not just at MMJs, but at the other people in the building to really get an understanding of how we can all move forward and treat this position with both the respect and attention that it deserves. Well, first of all, where can people uh, uh, access this story? So I have a blog on the side called Telling the Story. It's tellingthestoryblog.com. And uh, right now it's uh, obviously the most recent post, but it is on that Site. I also posted the results of all of the multiple choice questions in the survey. I did quite a few. I had quite a few open-ended questions and follow-up open-ended questions to a lot of these. But uh, I, for simplicity's sake, posted simply the multiple choice answers. But those give a pretty good feel as to how MMJs view their jobs. Yeah, and we'll have a link to that on our website with this interview. A couple of thoughts, just in sort of what you're, just, you're describing. I would guess that, you know, when people say that they don't see themselves in this position in 10 years, I would guess, uh, having no experience as a video journalist, 
outside of just producing small little pieces, but not for a TV station, that people who come into television news might see being a solo multimedia reporter as a as a transition job. This is a way for me to get into the station to produce pieces, but my ultimate goal is to become an anchor, to, you know, become a some other position in TV news, as opposed to seeing that as the, the end goal. Yes, I think that that's definitely a part of it. But there are a few counters to that idea. The first thing, and, and one thing I saw with this survey, we had 96 people respond, and nearly a quarter of them worked in top 25 markets. So we actually had a larger percentage of respondents from top 25 markets than any other 25 market cross-section in the country. And I think what that shows is that not only can it be a foot in the door when you get into the industry to shoot your own stories, but it can also be a foot in the door and a way of life in a big city. I know that's how it's been for me. I got to Atlanta eight years ago and at no point have I ever thought, boy, I wish I didn't have to shoot my own stories because my station in large part is very advanced in terms of how it integrates MMJs into the workflow. And they're excellent at not asking us to do more than we can handle. They're excellent at incentivizing it. So again, I've covered the Olympics three times and I honestly don't think I would have gotten to do that once if I didn't have that ability. So there is a large incentive for me at my workplace to have that skill set and to be able to get better at it. So I think that's one part of it. But the other thing too, that I think is very important when it comes to that idea that, you know, it's, it's a stepping stone and it's something that can be left behind is that I think for a lot of people, it's not so much that they don't see themselves doing that or that they wouldn't want to do it, but that they wouldn't want the demands and workload that comes with it. Like I said, I think there's something very empowering to the solo lifestyle. And I know many people my age, I'm 35, but I know many people my age or around that age and up who say they wouldn't have it any other way. But I think there's, I think there's an issue in our industry where we kind of, we take advantage of our younger journalists in a way that makes the idea of doing this long-term seem far less palatable and far less desirable than if there was a little more motivation, a little more incentive Again, I don't know how happy I would be as an MMJ at 35 if I hadn't seen the results of that, if I hadn't seen the product of it. So it's something that I really always try to encourage people that it doesn't need to be a means to an end. It can be the whole journey. It can be it can be a very profitable one on many levels. Yeah, and I get that. And I, and I also get, I think, you know, I understand why people may not want to shoot their own spots. I understand the idea of safety concerns, especially for, for young women who are out covering a story and don't have somebody else there to back them up, uh, or even it doesn't even need to be a woman. It's just putting yourself out there when you had a more traditional situation where there you had a team or you had a cameraman who was there to help you, who could sort of watch your back when, when you were involved in something. I mean, you know, that, that can be very important. I would imagine, you know, them trying them management trying to <laughs> encourage you to, you know, shoot your own spots is just, I would imagine this a resource thing that they're trying to save on a resource. And on the other hand, I mean, looking at the whole concept of a, a solo video journalist, you know, what is that replacing? Is it replacing sort of a, or has it replaced a, a more traditional, you know, reporter with a cameraman and maybe a producer, a team going out and covering something? So you're, you, you're taking positions. So maybe this is sort of a logical next step is, well, if you're already doing this, then you know, I'm already saving by not having a, a cameraman and maybe a, a producer in the field that, that this is another way for them to save money in a, in a tight budgetary time. Not that it's right, but maybe that's the, the some of the reasoning behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's the logic that I think a lot of people had concerns about originally with the solo video journalist concept in general, that, hey, all you're doing, you're not trying to make the product better. You're just trying to make it cheaper and trying to cut staff. And I think what has been proven over time is that when solo video journalism is treated right and given the proper investment that the people who do it can produce some great work that's on par and even uh, surpasses the work of traditional crews. When it comes to solo live shots, though, it's a very discouraging thing. And I think part of the reason we hadn't really seen that until very recently is because 
the equipment didn't allow it. So, you know, just by nature of having a satellite truck that you needed to go live with, that required having an extra body. So, you know, I, I think the reason that it's taken so long to for managers to start doing this is because they simply haven't had a choice. And in some situations, I don't think it's the worst thing. I mean, I, you know, when I was uh, covering the primary season back in February last year, I went to South Carolina to cover primary night for the Republican Party. I was at a Donald Trump victory party, what it wound up being. And I saw pretty much everybody in mid-markets or medium-sized markets shooting their own live shots. And in that situation where you're cordoned off, where you're basically on an island and where you're indoors and it's very much a controlled setting, then a one-person live shot isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I think it does – first of all, it puts people in very unsafe situations regularly, and that's unacceptable. I think if there are if there are situations where people feel regularly unsafe, of course they're not going to want to do the job two years from now, let alone ten years from now. But in addition, I think that's one area where it is very difficult to replicate the work of a two-person crew. It you know when you have to stand in front of a camera and you have to be completely you have to completely block out everything going on around you. A, that makes you less aware of your surroundings, but also you're away from your camera. So if you want to show the surroundings in the live shot, you just can't do it. It becomes very, very difficult to try to replicate what a reporter and photographer can do as a traditional crew much more easily. So I understand, obviously, the logic, and, and I think certainly at a time when resources are always at a premium, the temptation will always be there to try to exploit that opportunity as much as possible. But I think when it comes to live shots specifically, there is a reason that the journalists in my survey gave it such negative reviews while giving every other part of the job where you could apply that same logic such positive reviews. Before we wrap up here, I, I want to ask you about uh, your experience uh, writing a book. Um, you could, because I, I had the same experience within the last year. And uh, I never thought that I was going to get the opportunity to write a book. And so I, I just kind of want to get your thoughts about that. Well, you know, how did that come about and, and what was your experience? Well, it goes back to similarly with the survey. It goes back to feeling like I was in a position to start giving back and to start helping not just myself, but my industry as a whole. And about two years ago, I went ahead with the process and started with it and it was, an, it was an area and a world that I knew nothing about. I had never written a book proposal. Uh, I had an idea of what it would take to write a book. And when I started my blog a few years before that, I had done so somewhat with the intention of, okay, if I ever do decide to write a book, this will be a good way of seeing if I can consistently sit down and write multiple times a week. So I had a confidence that I could be able to uh, to commit and have the discipline to actually write a book, I knew nothing about the rest of it. And that part was very, very interesting to me. I uh, wrote a book proposal, sent it out to a few publishers, heard back from uh, Routledge and Focal Press. Uh, they're both under the Taylor and Francis, uh, or their imprints under the Taylor, Taylor and Francis house based out of England. And they've done some great work in academic writing and, and in terms of publishing academic works. So, I knew I would be in good hands, and from that point, it was really a matter of just getting everything done. And again, I think the time management and flexibility skills that I bring to my day job wound up being a tremendous asset in this opportunity as well, because not only was I responsible for writing the text of the book, but I was responsible for submitting all of the photos and graphics that would go with it. Uh, it was a good friend of mine who took what I thought was a really great cover photo, but I had to reach out and make sure that that got done. I had to go through the work of quadruple and quintuple checking everything I wrote because of the permanence that comes with writing a book. And that was a really intriguing challenge for me. Again, diving into the unfamiliar and coming out on the other side and feeling good about what I've produced and it's already gotten a very nice response. I hear regularly, both on Twitter and in email, from journalists who've bought the book and feel inspired by it. I know 
for me, it was very inspiring because not only was I offering my own advice, but for each chapter on the solo video journalism process, I spoke with a different nationally renowned MMJ. And that was great to hear about their process, to have it infuse my own work with new energy and with new techniques. So it was really great. And, uh, you know, it's something that's always been on my list of major career goals is writing a book. And now that I've done it, it is something in which I take immense pride, but I'll be even prouder when it starts affecting the journalists who read it and when it starts planting seeds for the future of our business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Taylor Francis is actually my publisher as well. And uh, I'm, I'm still in the the, the publishing process the, the 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 latest deadline or latest deadline the latest release date is in june um i'm just starting the uh production process we're going to be doing um you know the, going to be doing the editing the copy editing and looking at the the sheets and everything it was an odd experience for me a very rewarding experience i i'm sure it's going to be i would hope it's going to be just as rewarding when we get to the end of it, it's published and, you know, I can move on to, to whatever else, to, to, the <laughs> af, to the aftermath of it. I did not expect to, to write a book in my in my life, and it was sort of something that came to me. I had sort of a similar experience. I started blogging, and somebody actually approached me about the book. You know, I think it was at that point where I realized, well, I have these skills and these these interests and lessons that I have learned why don't I just go ahead and start sharing them? And that's what I started doing on on podcast blog. And, and that sort of got noticed. And that sort of led to this. And for me, the opportunity to, like you, to talk to people who are experts in podcasting, because the book's about podcasting, and get their take, it, it did a lot of different things for me. It helped to inform me about the podcast that I do. But it also you know, got me thinking about the whole creative process. It's always neat to do something new creatively and you know take it from the beginning to the end even though i'm not at the the real end the end of actually writing it and and turning it in and and bringing in all those materials was a challenge but you know making that part of your your day-to-day you know while you're doing your job while you're doing your podcast or whatever else you need to do i mean that was certainly a challenge and and i feel great for having been able to do that um and i'm looking forward to the next step uh the publication and and see where that goes from there (laughs) do you think you'd do another book Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly, I imagine as the position of solo video journalist continues to evolve, my book, The Solo Video Journalist, will require a second and third edition down the road. And I know I've already been talking with my publisher about that. But I'll tell you what, and and tell me if you felt this way as well. I think there are definitely parts in all of our jobs where it is a struggle to actually get started and do the work. And you know, for whatever reason, you're just not in a good mood that day or you're tired or sluggish, whatever the reason, there are times in our jobs where, you know, we got to rev ourselves up a little bit and we got to, where we have to really fight to want to get going and get to work that day. But with writing the book, I never felt that way. And even though I was doing it on my own time and it was nights and weekends and I had to explain to my wife, who we had just gotten married literally the week before I signed the contract <laughs> with the publishing company. Make all those big decisions at once. Yes. And I, I very quickly said, by the way, when we do go on our honeymoon, I will completely put this to the side. So That's that was said right up front. <laughs> but what would seem to be such a daunting task of having to do all of that work and devote so much time. And yet for me, it was an absolute joy. And it was it was a real great chance to rise to a challenge. It was a chance to have a certain amount of creative freedom over the work that I was doing. Again, something I've I've said multiple times now that I, I really thrive off of having. And even after the writing process, it was really great because, you know, there were about six months between when I submitted the final text and when the book came out. And in that time, there were just these constant little neat nuggets of reinforcement where someone who I knew would would be sent an advanced copy and I would get a text. I got a text from one of the people who I interviewed in the book who they sent the advanced copy to for a, for a back cover quote. And he lives in San Diego and he was sitting by the pool and he sent me a picture of his bare feet in the book. And it was a bizarre photo, but he was saying how he was reading this book while just laying out by the pool in San Diego. And I thought that was just, you know, that was just such a fun little text to receive. And then when you see the cover proof for the first time, when you see the entire proofs of the book, 
and you see how it's actually going to look on a page. That's not anything I ever imagined for myself in my career when I first started. And to go through that world and, and see that process and be able to watch the book, you know, really be really come to fruition over a period of months, even though I, I really wasn't doing a whole lot of work myself on it. Being able to get those constant nuggets of reinforcement was just a, a real joy. And, and obviously now that it's out and seeing the response that it's getting and hoping that it'll find its way into classrooms and that college journalists will be able to take advantage of it. That's been very exciting. It's, it's been, I had two goals when I, two goals for writing the book. One was just to have accomplished that specific goal of writing a book and meeting that challenge, but also to see it really benefit the journalism world in a positive way. And that's the part that I'm in now and the part that I'm excited about and, and the part that's already starting to see some good results. So I'm hoping that'll continue. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm beginning to see a lot of that, that positive stuff. Actually, the whole process has been very positive, uh, which kind of surprised me because, you know, I'm one of these people who that I look at a task and I say, wow, this is going to be a really tough mountain to climb. There were a couple of things about the experience that, that really jumped out at me when I was in the middle of it. You touched on this, this idea of in our industry that sometimes it's really hard to start something and to motivate yourself and do things. I felt very much that the preparation for it, the um, doing the, uh, the outline and, and the book proposal was incredibly helpful to me in the actual writing process because it, it you know I had, had a, a couple of months where I was thinking through the whole process what what do I want to have in the book who do I want to talk to what is each chapter going to be what points do I want to take and so it allowed me to organize my thoughts and to sort of plan out the um, the writing of it I didn't even realize that so much until actually I got to the writing because what I what it sort of set out to myself was, okay, I need to talk to about 50 podcasters about podcasting. And so I created this, you know, part of the book proposal, I had to put together this list. And, you know, I had this list of, you know, 50 people, and I ended up maybe interviewing 30 of those. And then I had to find 20 other people to talk to get to reach that sort of demand. And so for the first few months, it was all about interviewing people. But when I actually got into the writing process of it, that was actually where I was really concerned about the anxiety because I have anxiety issues sometimes and uh, that if I allow myself to to dwell too much on it or look and say oh my god this is so much to do how can I do this and actually looking at the process looking at the outline and then the um, the interviews that I had and understanding if I trusted the process you know once I figured out how much I was gonna be able to write each day I was like okay if I trust this process and I commit to writing this much each day at this point in the calendar, I'll be done. And, you know, it's a very mechanical thing. And it was, you know, and for me, much more than a lot of other writing that I've done, I wouldn't say it was a joy, but it was not that onerous. It was actually kind of rewarding in a way as I was writing that I knew that I was moving incrementally forward to this, to, to completion. And so when I got to the end, and, you know, turned everything in, it was just like, wow, that, you know, I had planned this thing out. I followed the steps and I got to where I said it was going to go. And so for me, just that whole process was, was hugely rewarding. And so it's, it's been kind of a, a sort of a roller coaster. And they, now I'm not one of these people who go around and say, well, yeah, I wrote this book. So every time people ask me about it, I'm really kind of embarrassed. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's coming out. I, you know. Oh, I told very few people about mine. I, I, was, I was so uh, superstitious and, and, you know, I, I was almost until it came out, I was like, oh, my gosh, this thing might not happen. So let me just tell as few people as possible. And that way, when it does happen, it'll just be positive news uh, for everyone. But I have friends who do the exact opposite, who they thrive off of other people for that motivation when they're writing the book. I had, a, I had a friend who just went through that and she said that she told as many people as possible because <laughs> without that, because she needed, she she needed that, that source of accountability as yeah. well, knowing that, okay, if I say I'm going to do this, I got to come back and produce it. Yeah, no, I had to, I had to keep all that inside me. I, you know, I, I think that, because I think I sort of sensed that would have like upped the anxiety if I, you know, yes. if I told, you know, all these different people who at different points of the day, we go, how's the writing going? You know, what have you done? <laughs> if I had all that, I would have gone crazy. But because it was all sort of insular and I could sort of focus on, on the steps when I got to the end, it was like, oh, okay, great. So it's a weird experience all around. But you know what though? I think it's such a good lesson for journalists out there to not 
get fixed in one lane. And, you know, you're yes. a perfect example of this. You obviously have a blog, a podcast, now a book in, in addition to what you oh, do Jesus. on a day to day basis. And <laughs> and I have to say, I think, you know, and this goes back to what I was saying before about how so often I think we get so trapped in the day to day deadline mode. At least I feel that way in local TV, how, it, it you know, there are so many deadlines on a given day that no matter your big aspirations, so often they just get completely scrapped for the sake of I got to get this on at five. I have to get this on at six. And I think it's so important for any journalist, really. I mean, I, you know, I really mostly speak to younger journalists, but I would say for any journalist, there is such an untapped market of opportunity out there. And market sounds almost a little cold and businesslike, but I, what I mean by that is you really are bound by nothing. I, my blog cost me a couple hundred bucks to, purchase a domain name. I make no money off of it. It is done completely on the side. My podcast is, is the same way. And those have been some of the most rewarding things. And they have set the stage for me to do bigger things like writing a book. And so much of what we do in one form of media can be translated or transferred to a different form. So I, I think it's just such uh, an encouraging thing when there are success stories that happen across platforms and, and where people are able to kind of see beyond the day to day and think about the bigger picture. Because, you know, again, I think so much of us get into this industry wanting to do those big things and with these huge ideas about what journalism is and what we can accomplish in it. And unfortunately, in so many cases, that idealism gets very quickly turned into cynicism. And it's something, you know, we all get cynical to a certain degree but you can't lose that idealism and that ambition in the process. And so I think it's so important to see examples of those examples where that idealism and ambition pays off. Yeah. I, I never wanted to do a podcast. I never wanted to write a book with the idea of that I was going to be famous or that I, this is going to bring me riches or this is going to be some great, huge thing. It was just opening myself up to opportunities. I, I started doing a podcast because I wanted to do a podcast. I wanted because I thought it would be fun. But then I also thought it would be informative to people in my career and you know, the benefits that have come out of it, not only the book, but the fact that I get a chance to talk to people like you who about the career I am in, I'm in, you know, hearing stories about successes and things that work and, you know, sometimes things that that don't work, but that you but that you learn from. You're a perfect example. That you, you know, here's somebody who, who opens himself up for an opportunity. You know, being a solo video journalist is a great you know, that's a great example of a career where, you know, you're kind of in control of the direction that you want to go and you know, applying that to your life, saying yes to things, not being afraid to go, you know, go forward. You know, like I said before, I have anxiety issues, not letting an anxiety and, and self-doubt, you know, keep you from going forward. You don't know what doing something is going to result in. I did not know that doing a podcast, you know, I'd still be doing a podcast four, four and a half years later, <laughs> and then it would lead to a book and lead to a conversation with you and other people. But, you know, just open yourself up and put the effort in and, and things happen um, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, but, you know, you just, but you have to make those steps. You have to take those leaps. You can't wait around for somebody to hand you something, do something because it's fun and rewarding and, and that you're going to learn something different and interesting because that's kind of what life is, you know. And, you know? I, and I think not to interrupt you, but I think, you know, you, you just kind of you corrected yourself in a very important way there where you said surprisingly, but not really surprisingly. And that's really it. Right. It shouldn't be surprising that people with tremendous ambition and knowledge and an expertise in something, if they open themselves up, it should work out. And, you know, again, I think the fear of failure keeps a lot of people from doing things and the fear of investment of time. But that idea that just instinctively we think, oh my gosh, how out of the realm of possibility that you wrote a book or that I wrote a book or that someone does this thing on the side and, and it takes off, that shouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. There's no reason in our world where we come in with such a diverse base of knowledge and skills that that shouldn't be doable, you know? Yeah. And don't have expectations. I, I had no expectations about any of this. But it's sort of falling forward in a positive direction. And the other thing I said is it's just being open to experience. Don't listen to naysayers. I, not that I've had anybody really sort of naysay anything that, that I've done here, but it, you know, that's do it for yourself. Do it for the people you love. Not, you know, 
that's really all that's important is, you know, make the effort and do it because it's something you want to do, not with any expectation that it's going to lead to anything huge and grand. And if those things happen, that's that's just gravy. Yes, well, I think that's right. Okay, well, we've been blathering on for quite a long time. Let's <laughs> sort of wrap it up. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Matt. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Next time on It's All Journalism. I like to call it Wizard of Oz journalism. It's, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. We know what we're doing. You're lucky to have us. You will take what we give you and you will <laughs> like it. Instead of really investing time and understanding what people need from you, you know, not just throwing out a question and waiting for people to respond and then patting yourself on the back because you've engaged. It's like, you know, real engagement happens when you're adjusting what you're doing based on the feedback you're getting and where your coverage is really influenced by what you're getting back. That's that's a relationship. In our next podcast, we talk to Joy Mayer, an engagement strategist and consulting fellow at the Reynolds Journalism Institute. She tells us how you can build a better relationship with your readers. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.